I'm D.W. Gibson, and today for Leonard Lopate. Many of Trump administration policies and executive actions have set up conflicts between the federal government and the states. While these conflicts are mainly about immigration, so far the legalization of marijuana could easily be the next big showdown between states that are moving toward more legalization and the federal government's increasingly hostile stance toward legal marijuana. The semi-legal status of the drug has been a reality for years now, and as many more, much more money pours in, the economy of pot and the nature of the drug itself has changed. So for this week's Please Explain, we are talking about the future of legal marijuana. Joining me now is Amanda Chicago-Lewis, a journalist who has covered this topic for years. She's a columnist at Rolling Stone, and her latest story on the subject is The Great Pot Monopoly Mystery in GQ Magazine. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Hey, how's it going? Great to be here. Great. And, you know, for, for the first, uh, for the Please Explain segment, as you all know, we invite our audience into the conversation. Do you have a question about marijuana, about its legality, about its potential medical benefits? Give us a call. Our number is 212-433-9692, or you can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate, or on our Facebook and, and on Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. So, Amanda, I want to start with your most recent GQ story. You opened the story with someone named Mogli Holmes. Um, who is he and what is his background? Uh, yeah, Mogli Holmes is a geneticist. He has a Ph.D. from Columbia University, um, and he started a lab in Portland, Oregon, where they are... Uh, looking at the genetics of as many strains of cannabis as possible, mapping uh, the strains, and then they are going to use that genetic information uh, with something called marker-assisted breeding to make better cannabis. Wow. So stuff that might be pest-resistant or um, have more medical properties, things like that. So why did he want to talk to you? So uh, Mowgli, uh, because of his attention to genetics, uh, had found out, as had many uh, powerful insiders in the cannabis industry, uh, that a somewhat mysterious company was patenting uh, lots and lots of strains of cannabis um, and had obtained patents on the plant and was planning on mm, getting patents on uh, essentially every type of marijuana that exists. Um, and he was very concerned about who these people were, why they were doing what they were doing, um, and the fact that they might be potentially patenting things that previously existed, uh, right? And because marijuana is a black market, it's sort of difficult for drug dealers to come out and say, hey, uh, you can't patent that. I've been selling it for years. Um, And so he was very concerned that this might be a big ag takeover of the marijuana market. So how many strains strains, uh, would be affected by patenting or have been affected by patenting? So uh, last year, when only two patents had been issued, currently three patents have been issued, but last year when it was two, uh, another pot geneticist, um, Reggie Gaudino in Berkeley, California, estimated that the existing patents covered between one-half and two-thirds of all strains currently on the market. Uh, And I think there are a total of something like seven patent applications, and if all of them were granted, it would pretty much cover all cannabis. Um, And this is sort of beyond strains at this point. Um, The patent applications 
look at different uh, chemical compounds that are found in uh, cannabis and do it based on that. So, you know, all of the strains that contain certain compounds but don't contain other compounds, um, sort of like that. Right. And how are new strains of marijuana formed? I mean, how does the breeding process work? Yeah, it's just like any other plant, except it's actually much more diverse than most of the plants or um, produce you might see in a supermarket um, because it hasn't been quite industrialized, you know. There are seeds and clones, so like cuttings of the plant that get traded and sold, um, usually in a pretty black market way. Uh, Even in legal markets, um, you know, there's this sort of immaculate conception idea of, well, if you legalize cannabis in New York uh, for medical reasons, how do those producers even get those seeds because it's illegal to bring the seeds across state lines. So it's sort of a look-the-other-way situation. Listeners, do you have questions about marijuana? Give us a call, 212-433-9692. So tell us about a utility patent. What's that? So utility patents are the strongest form of intellectual property protection. Uh, Utility patents on plants started being issued in the early 1980s, mostly to big ag companies like Monsanto that had spent millions and millions of dollars on genetically modified um, plants, right, like the Roundup Ready soybeans or corn that were resistant to specific pesticides. Uh, And then they started issuing utility patents on, you know, other forms of plants that uh, just exist before and weren't genetically modified. Uh, And so if you have, if a big company has a utility patent on a plant, farmers um, need to buy the seeds every year. Uh, You can't um, take seeds from the thing you grew last harvest and uh, plant them again. You have to go buy seeds. You have to sign these rather strict contracts. And pretty much everybody involved um, in selling the plant needs to pay some sort of to um, to the people who own the patent. So it's, it's very strict. It's, there are broader forms of intellectual property protection for plants that have existed for much longer, but utility patents um, are the strongest. And how can a company receive a patent for a product that's illegal at the federal level? Seems mind-blowing, doesn't right, it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I talked to the USPTO, and you know, they essentially said just because you have a patent on something doesn't mean you can use it legally. Uh, it stops other people from selling it or commercially marketing it, but it doesn't necessarily um, give them the power to uh, sell anything you know, legally. So it's sort of a, str- a strange loophole. What seems to have happened is, you know, this you know, very well-funded group of people um, hired, you know, very high-end, big ag-style lawyer to help them prepare this very professional um, set of patent applications. And so, you know, once they were sort of speaking the language of the patent office, the patent office said, okay, let's play ball, and things moved along. And it's been actually going on very quietly for a couple of years now. So would the patents even be enforceable? Uh, You know, I would say they probably won't be enforceable until federal legalization. And then there's also sort of the possibility of a legal challenge from other people uh, in the cannabis industry, right, who don't want to be paying patent fees. Um, And so there are a couple of different things that could potentially help uh, with a legal challenge. Um, First of all, there's something called prior art, right? If you can prove that these strains existed before, uh, that would sort of undermine the patent. Uh, And there are people who say they have databases that show uh, these strains existed before the patents were issued. Uh, And then there's something um, in agriculture uh, called the stabilized line, where essentially 
all of the commercial seeds that get sold now, it's like reproducible such that every time you plant that seed or every seed in the uh, bag will produce pretty much the same plant. And that's not how it is with cannabis because cannabis hasn't been uh, standardized and industrialized yet. Um, it's been just sort of this quiet uh, black market thing for such a long time. So there's sort of a, a theory among certain pot geneticists that um, the seeds that were put into this patent application uh, are not stabilized. They're not going to produce the same plant over and over, and they need to be stabilized in order to get a patent. So that's another avenue. But essentially, it would cost a lot of money to challenge these patents. Um, And it's sort of a question now of who would want to put up that money um, and whether people in the cannabis industry might work together um, against this sort of larger force that is acquiring all the intellectual property. Right. I'm D.W. Gibson speaking with Amanda Chicago-Lewis. This is WNYC, WNYC WNYC.org. Let's take a call. We have uh, Tim from Manhasset. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm wondering if, Ms. Lewis, I I understand this is a uh, conversation about uh, legalizing, like, I guess, recreational use of marijuana. Uh, I'm wondering if she is uh, um, observing or looking into the distinction between Tim, are you there? Oh, I think we lost him. Yeah, so sorry, can you uh, distinguish between, I think he was getting at the question, uh, distinguishing between medical and recreational use here. Oh, it's a very thorny issue. Exactly. Um, yeah, well, you know, I think there are people who think that medical use is not a real thing because uh, medical use has been used as sort of a political tool to open the door to recreational use. Um, you know, I think it's a very fine line, and I think you need to acknowledge those political realities uh, when talking with anyone who sort of doesn't believe in medical use. There are right. very uh, amazing and sort of promising medical properties uh, that cannabis has, and sadly, um, its illegality has made it very difficult to do proper clinical trials and um, research. Uh, and so, you know, there are people who argue that all Uh, cannabis use is medical use, that it's all sort of about wellness. Um, You know, I think that it's it's clear there is sort of a distinction there. And I think you could sort of look at, well, let's talk about opioids. What is the difference between somebody using heroin and what is the difference between somebody using morphine after surgery? Um, I think there also, though, can be a midpoint, right? Like if someone is using cannabis to help them sleep and, you know, in the hour before they fall asleep, they're stoned and feeling good. I mean, is that medical use or is that recreational use? I think it's, this is how drug use is. You know, there are a lot of different intentions and purposes behind it and getting intoxicated is something human beings have been doing for a very long time and it could depend on the moment or the person or, you know, the feeling that they're having at that moment. Indeed. Uh, Let's go to John from Lindbrook. Hi, John, you're on the air. Yes, hello. Uh, In fact, I did read your article. It was very good. I want to know, how would this affect, like, um, the seed banks that you can order seeds from, like Northern Seed Bank or Barney's Farm from Canada or Amsterdam? Um, So far, it hasn't affected those things, right? Because the patents exist, but the people who hold the patents have not begun uh, charging anyone or trying to enforce them yet. So I think that remains to be seen. And, you know, Northern California has a large-scale pot farming, uh, it has large-scale pot farming for decades. How are the farmers in this region responding to the threat of patents? You know, in a a couple of different ways, right? Um, There are... 
people um, that I spoke to who were trying to send their genetics to uh, Malgley Holmes, uh, the geneticist we were talking about before, uh, so that he will put them in um, this public domain nonprofit that he's affiliated with called the Open Cannabis Project, hoping that um, those strains will stay public and cannot be patented. But then, you know, there are also lots of people who are saying, well, hey, I want my own patent, um, and trying to hire people to help them get patents. Um, there's a, a grower up there who's trying to use a lawyer to get in on the existing patents that these um, mysterious people have gotten uh, and is trying to say, well, hey, you took seeds from me and clones from me a couple years ago, and then similar strains appeared in your patent application, therefore I should be part of the patent too. Um, so it's sort of contentious because, you know, obviously if you are running a business and you have developed a, you know, special strain that you think deserves protection, maybe, you know, you want to get protection for that as we move into legalization. So does Biotech Institute have much of an online presence? I mean, how were you able to find out much about them? Yeah, so Biotech Institute is the name of the company that holds the patents. Um, Other than holding the patents, they really don't have uh, anything else. That's it. There's huh. patents and sort of a public records uh, business registration in California that pointed me to, you know, a specific person and a specific address. You know, there's the name of the attorney uh, who's on that business registration form, and then there are three people who are on the patent form who were the patent inventors who did a lot of the breeding and work there. Um, and, you know... Those people are also involved in several other companies that involve cannabis or cannabinoids, which are the chemical compounds found in cannabis. Uh, And though they say that those companies are not affiliated with each other, it it seems um, as though they are. And several people who were close to the situation implied to me that um, this was actually just a single group of people working together under different names. Right. Uh, let's go to uh, Trey from the Bronx. Hi, Trey. You're on the air. Hey, how you doing? I'm, I'm really grateful for this subject. Uh, thank you, guests, so much. Um, I just really have one quick statement. Um, it, I, I find it to be shameful, uh, the whole uh, lawful process of this. There's so many uh, people of color locked up for this cannabis, and uh, now that it's become legal in certain states, um, I've noticed that the states that it is legal, uh, the population is your uh, high Caucasian with Washington, Colorado. I mean, um, and then everybody that owns this stuff is uh, of uh, Caucasian complexity. So all the big owners are Caucasian, as usual. Um, the permits are very expensive. And so all the people of color, except for probably uh, one or two, are blocked out. And um, meanwhile, those are the ones that are in jail for this. Uh, so, so, Amanda, so I, just, I just find it to be uh, so hypocritical. It's really ironic. So, uh, but I appreciate the show. Um, keep, keep, keep up with all the information. And uh, thank you very much. Amanda, yeah, and how does that strike you? Have you seen this in your reporting? Yeah, I've actually written a lot about this um, and wrote a big investigation that came out about maybe a year and a half ago um, about black dispensary owners in the United States um, that was on BuzzFeed that sort of found that uh, at that point there were about 1% of the dispensary owners in the United States were black. So since that came out and um, 
there was more attention drawn to some of the like inherent problems with the laws that were preventing people of color from getting involved. So in most places, if you have a drug felony on your record, you're not allowed to participate in the legal cannabis industry. So the intention behind that law was that, or the intention behind that rule in most places um, was to keep out criminals, right? Because people who were uh, putting together these laws felt like, well, we don't want untrustworthy people dealing with um, something that's still a federally illegal drug. However, um, you know, we know that the the law enforcement around cannabis has been racially biased for a very long time. In every county in America, black people are between two and ten times more likely to uh, get uh, arrested for marijuana crimes. And so if you have a criminal record, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are a criminal. It probably means that you are a black criminal. And meanwhile, white people who have a lot of experience on on the black market in cannabis uh, are doing really well under legalization because they are disproportionately unlikely to have a felony on their record. Um, So I did a really big investigation about this last year. And since then, there's been some progress in certain places. Um, California and Massachusetts are making it easier for people who have marijuana felonies to uh, participate in the industry. There have been what's called uh, equity permitting programs that attempt to uh, provide some sort of affirmative action for people of color and for people who have been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs to get involved in the cannabis industry. Um, Oakland has a program. Um, Washington, D.C. has a program. Uh, Pennsylvania and Ohio included in their uh, medical cannabis applications uh, incentives to get people to develop programs that would involve people of color in their businesses, though those aren't, you know, extremely as strong as the other ones I'm talking about. And then Los Angeles is supposed to drop uh, any day now, you know, details about uh, their equity program. Um, But no, it's still very troubling. And uh, the truth is there's, you know, just like many other industries and economic things going on in the United States, uh, white people are still in control. <laughs> I'm D.W. Gibson, and today for Leonard Lopate, and my guest is Amanda Chicago-Lewis, a columnist for Rolling Stone. This is WNYC and WNYC.org. We'll be right back after a break. I'm D.W. Gibson, and for Leonard Lopate, and I'm speaking with Amanda Chicago-Lewis. Amanda... Talk to me more about Biotech Institute. Uh, how big is the company? What were you able to find out about its owners and its shareholders? I know very little yeah. <laughs> about this company. <laughs> it's very mysterious. Um, I can tell you that the man, the attorney whose name is on the business registration uh, form, Gary Hiller, is also involved in a company called Phytex that is uh, affiliated with some of the most prominent cannabis scientists in the world. And we know that an investor in that company is a very wealthy man uh, in Beverly Hills named Sean Sedegat, who is involved in uh, cosmetics packaging um, and is Iranian. And uh, he... You know, a couple of people seem to imply to me that he was also helping to fund uh, the patents for Biotech Institute and that research. However, they denied that, so we're not really sure. Um, and, you know, we, even the, the lead patent inventor on uh, the patents has, is no longer apparently with Biotech Institute. Hmm. Um, 
it's it's all very muddled and mysterious. All we know is that these patents exist, and at any moment, you know, could they could attempt to start charging state legal pot licensed operators potentially for um, money. Right. Well, and you put uh, people who work in the pot industry into three categories, outlaws, green rushers, and code switchers. So tell us a little about these three groups. Yeah, so I've been reporting on the pot industry for several years now, and I've sort of developed these mental categories, and it's sort of based on how much risk people are willing to take um, because, you know, obviously cannabis used to be more illegal than it is now. Now it's still federally illegal. It's sort of a complicated situation. So in my mind, an outlaw is someone who made the decision to work with cannabis um, at a point when they didn't see legalization coming. They truly just wanted to be a drug dealer or an illegal cannabis grower or something like that. Um, and, you know, the intention was never to operate within a legal system, uh, even if they now are potentially trying to transition to being legal uh, when they first started out. That's sort of the idea. Right. Um, and then a green rusher is someone who came in in the last couple of years, was like, wow, cannabis is getting legal. I should get in on it because it's becoming legal uh, and make a lot of money. A lot of those people like to use cannabis, but they're mostly in it for the money. Um, and they try to avoid um, breaking the law, which can mean avoiding uh, what's known as touching the plant, right? So if hmm. you own a cannabis dispensary or a legal cannabis grow, you're technically touching the plant because you're working directly with marijuana. And then you have to be really careful about banking because banking is uh, insured and regulated by federal law. And so cannabis businesses are not supposed to have bank accounts, though sometimes they do secretly. Um, so green rushers are a little bit skittish, a little bit money-oriented. And then there's this category in the middle that I really think is going to be the people who control the cannabis industry in the future because they uh, have knowledge of sort of both sides. So the code switchers, in my mind, mostly started getting involved in cannabis around the time that the recession was getting started. There's a huge wave of people who joined the industry around then. Um, at that time, there, were, there was even greater overlap between medical cannabis markets and the black market than there is now. There's still a pretty big overlap, but it was much bigger then. Uh, and usually maybe California, Washington, Colorado, they got involved in the medical market. And so they're code switchers in my mind because maybe they had some experience um, in the corporate world or doing something legal. But because of when they got involved, they needed to be able to talk to the outlaws and work with the outlaws and deal with police raids and deal with difficult situations like that. Uh, but also part of why they got involved in cannabis was because maybe they saw legalization coming far down the line. And so they're code switchers because they can talk to both groups. They can talk to the investors from Wall Street, but they can also talk to the pot grower who's been, you know, in the mountains in Northern California for 40 years, you know, breaking the law. Right. And they're comfortable in both situations. So there's one high-profile name that makes it into your story, uh, Montel Williams. Yeah. How is he involved in all of this? Well, daytime, former daytime talk show host Montel Williams has actually been a marijuana advocate for a very long time. Uh -huh. um, he has MS, and he was diagnosed, I think, in 99 and started, talk, started talking about pot, you know, very shortly after that, which was pretty early. Um, and... 
He was an advocate. He's done a lot of political work, um, and he's also an investor in various uh, cannabis and cannabis-adjacent businesses. And so basically in 2010-2011, he was involved with this sort of extended group of people who are now uh, involved in the patents, or maybe we're starting to get, you know, plan for the patents back then. Uh, they collaborated on a dispensary in Sacramento known as Abaton. Montel was the face of that dispensary. Abaton also applied for uh, dispensary licenses and grow licenses in New Jersey, um, Minnesota, and Washington, D.C. Um, they received a license in Washington, D.C., and they have a cultivation center there now. Um, but Montel stopped working with them, I want to say, around 2012, it seems like. Um, and he, so I got in touch with him thinking, well, if you're affiliated with this extended group of people, perhaps you know, you know, about who is investing in these patents, or maybe he himself was investing in these patents, um, sat down with him, determined he was no longer working with those people. Um, but his sort of number two guy uh, led me a little bit closer to um, this uh, Iranian billionaire that I was talking about earlier, Sean Sedegat, who is an investor in one of the companies that is adjacent to the patents company. It's sort of, I'm going to be careful, it's sort of a complicated situation. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm D.W. Gibson speaking with Amanda Chicago-Lewis. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. Uh, you write that cannabis is 114 times less harmful than alcohol. Can you explain that further? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the result of uh, researchers that are doing work that I, you know, is sort of beyond my scientific ability. But um, yeah, there was uh, some research that came out, I think, a little over a year ago that looked at uh, the various harms created by different drugs. And alcohol was certainly uh, found to be 114 times more harmful than cannabis. Let's go to a call. Uh, Jay from Manhattan. Jay, you're on the air. Hello, Jay. Yes, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Uh, thank you for taking my call. My question was, with the recent revamping of the MDA study on PTSD subjects, uh, could this be maybe giving us a headway on maybe bringing marijuana down to a Class two drug or something with as subjectively dangerous as MDMA could be, it having possible side effects on specific subjects? You know, making such a broad accusation, do you think we could see a difference or maybe a challenge being made towards how marijuana standing is right now? And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Um, so, uh, you know, there is uh, there is a study happening with MDMA, but there's also um, a PTSD study approved with cannabis that is encountering a lot of roadblocks. Um, so I think generally it's just good to know that the federal government is making it extremely difficult to do any medical research whatsoever in human beings involving cannabis. Even this um, sort of landmark study uh, about PTSD, uh, which is being led by this um, researcher out of Arizona, um, they're having a lot of trouble finding approved subjects. Um, and now, uh, you know, it took much of the Obama administration to uh, the, the length of his term to sort of convince the DEA to jump on board with some of this stuff. Uh, and they did last year for this PTSD study. But now uh, Jeff Sessions's Justice Department is preventing, you know, more the e- easier research from happening. Essentially, the DEA was going to approve 
it's going to make it easier for there to be research, and the Department of Justice is roadblocking that. So we're, we're not going to really yeah. see good research on this for a while. Yeah, this <laughs> definitely seems to be a central point about the classification of the drug and the, 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 the cramps it puts on, uh, um, on actually uh, researching it more. Do you think any of the claims about the benefits of medical marijuana go too far? Yeah, you know, here's the thing. When you don't have good research, it's really hard to make solid claims and reasonable people disagree. It's all very tentative. Um, there is a lot of anecdotal evidence. Um, I think my favorite example of how crazy it is that we don't have solid facts that we can agree on is the fact that some people think that smoking marijuana causes cancer. It's certainly listed that way uh, under California law. Uh, and other people think that marijuana cures cancer. And the first time that I heard hmm. that, I, I mean, I freaked out. I was like, that's pretty much the craziest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. How could that be possible? How could the most, you know, popular illegal drug in the world cure, you know, one of the most widespread health problems of our time? Yeah. Um, and as it turns out, there is some sort of convincing research in mice, which is where most of the cannabis research actually gets done, uh, that shows cannabinoids uh, killing cancer cells and shrinking tumors. And then there is sort of this crazy, you know, underground world where marijuana growers are like sending cannabis oil to cancer patients through the mail. And there are, you know, all these sort of imagine what medicine looked like in the late 19th century when it was totally unregulated and you just had a, a hokey guy, you know, ride into town and say, hey, can I sell you some cough medicine? But it's actually like heroin. So that's right. essentially where we are with cannabis right now. Um, but there are people who are doing really good and interesting work helping cancer patients with cannabis, you know, and we know that it helps certainly with the nausea associated with chemotherapy. But right. I am not totally, you know, closing the door on the possibility that some combination of cannabinoids could be a cancer therapy for certain kinds of cancer. And that's after talking to scientists and experts and, you know, legitimate researchers for years about this. And at this point, I'm like, that might be a thing. So not, not, not established, but something you're not closing the door on. Yeah, no, and that's. Wouldn't you like to have more research to know? <laughs> exactly. So you, you recently wrote about your your uh, your own father's use of medical marijuana. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. My father has uh, arthritis and has been complaining about his achy joints for uh, a long time. And uh, there are cannabis topicals uh, that are very good, and that you you know you cannot get high through your skin. So if you're using a cannabis topical, it's totally safe. It's not going to get you too stoned or anything like that. Um, and I was trying to convince him to use this topical for a while, and then he finally tried it and immediately texted me that it worked. And I was like, mm -hmm. of course it worked. Um, but you do have to be careful because um, since cannabis topicals don't get you high, there's no way to know if the thing that you're buying actually contains what it says it contains. Mm -hmm. And so you could try a topical thinking you are trying a cannabis topical, and it's actually just you know, beeswax and mentholated, whatever. And so, you know, it's sort of a buyer beware, right? Like I right. said before, this late 19th century medicine situation. Did you find that other people your father's age knew about the options for using medical marijuana products? No, and I, you know, my friends call me the, the cannabis concierge because <laughs> the, when, you know, a friend or a parent or a relative has some kind of health issue, they will put them in touch with me and I will sort of give them advice about what they could buy and, you know, what they could use. Um, I have a friend whose father 
uh, hurt his back and was like, is cannabis an option for me? I don't want to get high. And, you know, we figured out uh, a tincture for him that doesn't get him high. And, you know, like 24 hours later, he called me amazed and was like, oh, my gosh, I feel so much better. You've changed my life. This is amazing. You know, and so you do have these stories. Lots of people have these stories of discovering the medical properties of cannabis and being sort of blown right. away and changing what they thought about this drug for their entire lives. I've been speaking with Amanda Chicago Lewis, whose latest story for GQ is The Great Pot Monopoly Mystery. Thank you so much for joining me today, Amanda. Thank you. 